Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You can download Spacetime as a free twice-weekly podcast just about everywhere, including iTunes, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, Bytes.com, SoundCloud, Audio Boom, and from SpacetimeWithStuartGary.com. The show's also broadcast coast-to-coast across the United States on Science360 Radio by the National Science Foundation in Washington, D.C. Coming up on Spacetime, a bounty of brown dwarves and planets discovered deep in the Orion Nebula, how the fabled man in the moon got his right eye, and NASA's mission to touch the sun. All that and more coming up on Spacetime. Welcome to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. New technology allowing astronomers to peer deeper into the heart of the Orion Nebula than ever before has revealed a massive population of previously unseen planets and brown dwarves. The discovery shows that the Orion Nebula may be forming proportionally far more low-mass objects than closer, less active star-forming regions. If that's the case, it poses some real challenges for the widely accepted scenario for Orion's star-forming history. The Orion Nebula is a massive star-forming region spanning over 24 light-years. It's located some 1,350 light-years away in the constellation Orion. The nebula is so massive it can easily be seen from Earth with the unaided eye, looking like a fuzzy patch in the middle of Orion's sword. The new images from the Hawkeye Infrared Instrument on the European Southern Observatory's Very Large Telescope in Chile has allowed astronomers to produce the deepest and the most comprehensive view into the heart of Orion, revealing some ten times as many brown dwarves and isolated planetary mass objects than were previously known. Brown dwarfs are failed stars. They fit in the region between the smaller stars and the largest planets. They're objects which simply didn't gain enough mass to begin nuclear fusion in their cores, the process which makes stars like our sun shine. Nebulas such as the famous one in Orion are known as H2 regions to indicate that they contain ionised hydrogen. These immense clouds of interstellar gas are sites of prolific star formation. The very presence of these low-mass bodies provides an exciting insight into the history of star formation within the nebula itself. Some nebula, like Orion, are strongly illuminated by ultraviolet radiation from the many hot stars born within them. This ultraviolet radiation ionises the gas, causing it to shine brightly. The relative proximity of the Orion nebula makes it an ideal test bed to better understand the processes and the history of star formation, and to determine how many stars of different masses are formed. Understanding how many low-mass objects are found in the Orion Nebula helps astronomers constrain theories of star formation. The new study shows that the way these very low-mass objects form depends heavily on their environment. The new data is causing excitement in the astronomical community because it reveals an unexpected wealth of very low-mass objects, which in turn suggests that the Orion Nebula may be forming proportionally far more low-mass objects than closer, less active star-forming regions. Astronomers count up how many objects of different masses form in regions like the Orion Nebula in order to try and better understand the star formation process. The information helps astronomers develop their IMF, or Initial Mass Function, a way of describing how many stars of different masses make up a stellar population at its birth. This in turn provides an insight into the stellar population's origins. 
In other words, determining an accurate IMF and having a solid theory to explain the origin of the IMF is of fundamental importance to the study of star formation. Before this research, the greatest number of objects were found with masses of about a quarter that of our Sun. The discovery of a plethora of new objects with masses far lower than this in the Orion Nebula has now created a second maximum at a much lower mass in the distribution of star counts. Dr Simon O'Toole, a planetary scientist from the Australian Astronomical Observatory, says these new observations provide a tantalising hint that the number of planet-sized objects may be far greater than previously thought. They've looked at this region of the Orion Nebula, which is an area of high star formation, so lots and lots of stars are forming there. And what they've found is a lot of brown dwarf candidates, so these are sort of failed stars or some something somewhere in between a, a star and a planet, and uh, something which is called an isolated planetary mass object, which are basically planets or candidates. So they're very, very low mass, uh, and in fact, far more than they'd expected. About 10 times more candidates than were known before, uh, far more than were expected. And the interesting that they've, thing that they found is that if they look at all of the masses, how the masses are distributed throughout the Orion Nebula, they find that for star-like things, there's a sort of a peak in the mass range. And then for things that look like planets or brown dwarfs, there's a peak there as well. And But there's a dip in the middle. And, and that dip in the distribution of masses actually occurs at the deuterium burning limit, which is basically what we think when we have a theoretical definition of what's the difference between a brown dwarf or a star and a planet. It's the fact that a star burns hydrogen uh, and then, you know, develops the, the, the nuclear fusion feedback to maintain it, uh, whereas the planet does not. It can only burn a little bit of deuterium, and deuterium runs out very quickly, um, and then you, the, the, the object cools and, and fades away. And of course, that's mostly on the surface too, isn't it? Mostly on the surface, that's right. It doesn't really happen, in, happen the in the core. Yeah, so basically what you're seeing is for things that we would call them starry, they have their own sort of distribution of mass, and then for things which are planety, they have their distribution of mass. And when you look at the things together, you see this two-hump profile in the mass distribution, which is not at all expected. Sort of the standard mass function, which is what this is called, this distribution is called, the, the standard mass function is expected to be smooth, so not to have this dip. So where there are fewer fewer objects at around the deuterium mass limiting limit, it's actually expected that that there will be no no difference there. So it's really really interesting, and they've also just found a lot more very low mass objects than expected. So and I dare say that there are even more because they are limited in how low mass they can go because just very very low mass things. Let's call them planets, even though because I don't really like the term isolated planetary mass object. Uh, let's call them free floating planets. They are very very small and faint, and so they just can't detect them with current technology. I, I dare say when we have you know, larger telescopes, like the uh, you know, the next generation extremely large telescopes, we'll start to see even fainter lower mass things in Orion. And so we'll see this sort of hump shape become a hump at the star mass, the stellar mass end, and a, and a much more of a continuum at the, the planetary mass end. So it's really, really fascinating the result. It's very, 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 very interesting, very exciting, actually. And in some ways, you can look at how stars and planets form, and there is an idea that stars form in a gravitational collapse, whereas planets form through accretion. And you could perhaps argue that the two humps are because of two different formation mechanisms here. So it's a really, really... Uh, neat result, I think. The thing I found fascinating about this paper was the simple fact that it's backing up our existing theories on stellar formation and stellar system formation, where we have the planets and the central star forming at the same time. Quite 
Yeah, it's funny because I, I sort of feel that the, they do talk about the ejection of low mass objects from small groups of protostars as a way to explain this, but I'm not completely convinced. I, I dare say that we don't understand a lot about how brown dwarfs and planets form. I mean, we, we don't understand a lot about how star form, stars form. We, we've got a pr- reasonable handle on it, but particularly at the high mass end, but at this very low mass end, it's sort of the boundary between a planet and a brown dwarf. I think there's a lot to know. I mean, certainly the density of star formation in Orion means that it is very, very possible that you just have planets forming around, you know, protoplanets forming around protostars and the protoplanets get ejected and then just become planets or brown dwarfs or whatever by themselves. That is certainly possible, but I don't see this as a strong evidence for or against it. It's just, we don't, because really in the end they say, well, it doesn't fit a whole bunch of our, our theories. They say that they actually say it challenges deterministic theories, which emphasize the role of the mapping between the starless core mass function and the initial mass function, which is basically, you know, you just have the gas versus the, the mass function. <laughs> and there should be a, a mapping between the mass of the amount of gas you start with and then the mass function, the amount of stars and the masses of the stars and planets and things you end up with. So, you know, there are some challenges here. I mean, they do talk about the this ejection model, but they don't actually have a theory and they don't really match it that well with the theory. It's basically just a discussion at the end. They say, oh, well, you know, it's, it's very attractive. <laughs> That's kind of as far as they can go. I mean, they show a couple of plots I think that you know look look okay, but but really there's quite a lot of you can hide a lot. It's a, I think the, the mass function is a log on a log scale, <laughs> so you can hide a lot in a log scale, <laughs> particularly uh, at the low mass end when you don't have very many data points. So yeah, I, I mean it's a, but it's I think it's a really cool result. I think that the theoretical interpretation is still very open, but I think it's a very neat result. And of course the Hawkeye infrared instrument is pretty spectacular too in its performance. Just shows the power of some of these the instruments on these large telescopes. So the Hawkeye thing is, you know, big lasers to try and correct for the atmosphere so they can see these very faint, very small objects in crowded regions. So I think it's, um, yeah, it's a really, really neat thing and it's got a very large field of view. That's the other thing that the Hawkeye instrument has over sort of uh, things on, like, say, for example, Gemini. They just have uh, you know, more stars. They can, they're looking at a larger area so they can do these statistics with much higher significance. That's Dr Simon O'Toole from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. A new study has discovered that a huge asteroid or possibly protoplanet which crashed into the moon 3.8 billion years ago was responsible for giving the fabled man in the moon his right eye. A report in the journal Nature claims the impact of the massive 250-kilometre-wide space rock created the moon's iconic Imbrium Basin. The new size estimate means the Imbrium impactor was at least two times larger and possibly up to ten times more massive than previous estimates. One of the study's authors, Professor Pete Schultz from Brown University, says the findings show that Imbrium was likely formed by an absolutely enormous object, large enough to be classified as a protoplanet. The new estimate is based largely on the geological features caused by the impactor on the lunar surface. Previous estimates were based solely on computer models and they yielded size estimates of only about 90 kilometres in diameter, less than half the asteroid's actual size. The new findings also suggest that based on the sizes of other impact basins on the Moon, Mars and Mercury, the early solar system was likely well stocked with protoplanet-sized asteroids. The Imbrium Basin, which is seen from Earth as a dark patch in the northwestern quadrant of the Moon's face, measures about 1,200 kilometres wide. 
The basin is surrounded by grooves and gashes large enough to be seen with just a small backyard telescope. It was created by rocks blasted out of the crater when it formed. These features, known as the Imbrium sculpture, radiate out from the centre of the basin like spokes on a wheel, but they're concentrated on the basin's southeastern side. And that suggests that the impactor probably travelled from the northwest, impacting at an oblique angle rather than straight on. However, in addition to features radiating out from the basin's centre, there's a second set of grooves with a very different alignment. These appear to come from a region in the northwest along the same trajectory from which the impactor came. Up until now, this second set of grooves have been a mystery. However, when Schultz and colleagues conducted hypervelocity impact experiments using the vertical gun range at NASA's Ames Research Centre, they found that these additional grooves were likely formed by chunks of the impactor that sheared off on initial contact with the lunar surface. It was these secondary grooves created by those chunks which enabled Schultz to estimate the true size of the impactor. NASA's vertical gun range uses a 4.2-metre cannon that fires small projectiles at up to 25,750 kilometres an hour, while impact plates and high-speed cameras record ballistic dynamics. During his experiments with the low-angle impacts, Schultz noticed that the impactors tend to start breaking apart when they first make contact with the surface. That point of initial contact is actually behind or up-range from the final crater, where the bulk of the impactor digs into the surface. The chunks that break off uprange from the final crater continue travelling at a high rate of speed, scouring and grooving the surface. Schultz says the key point here is that the grooves made by these chunks aren't radial to the crater. Instead, they came from the region of first contact which points uprange from the impact crater. Schultz and colleagues developed computer models based on their experiments showing that exactly the same kind of physics would also happen at the colossal scales of a lunar impact. With an understanding of exactly how these grooves were created, the authors could use them to find the Imbrium impact point. And because the fragments would have broken off from either side of the impactor, the groove trajectories could be used to estimate the impactor's size. Those calculations yielded a low-end estimate of about 250 kilometres across, large enough for the object to be classified as a protoplanet. However, Schultz points out that it's also possible the impactor could have been much larger, possibly as much as 300 kilometres wide. Schultz and colleagues used similar methods to estimate the sizes of impactors related to several other basins on the Moon created by oblique impacts. Those estimates for the Moscoviense and Oriental basins on the Moon's far side yielded impactor sizes of 100 and 110 kilometres wide respectively, again larger than most previous estimates. By combining these new estimates with the fact that there are even larger basins on the Moon and other planets, Schultz concludes that protoplanet-sized asteroids may have been common in the early solar system. He says the large basins we see on the Moon and elsewhere are the record of lost giants. The surviving fragments of these impactors would have littered the ancient surface of the Moon, slowly becoming mixed with native rock and soil. And that could help to explain why samples returned from the Moon by the Apollo missions had such a high meteoric content. That's particularly true for Apollo 16, which landed downrange from the Imbrium impact. Furthermore, the work suggests that fragments from these giants could account for many of the impacts that occurred during a period in the solar system's history known as the Late Heavy Bombardment. The Late Heavy Bombardment occurred from about 3.8 billion to around 4 billion years ago a time when scientists think most of the craters we see on the Moon and other terrestrial bodies were formed. This new impact model suggests that thousands of the chunks that crumbled off the Imbrium impactor and others would have broken and kept on going, escaping the Moon's gravity and flying off into space. 
On subsequent orbits around the Sun, these chunks would have crossed the orbits of both the Earth and Moon again and again, creating a strong possibility of subsequent impacts. Some of those objects would have been a kilometre or more across, large enough to create 20-kilometre-wide craters. As a result, these asteroids could have contributed significantly to the impact record we see both on the Moon and other terrestrial objects today. Astronomers have produced the largest ever three-dimensional map yet of the visible universe, showing some 1.2 million galaxies and covering over a quarter of the sky and mapping out the structure of the universe over a volume of 650 cubic billion light-years. The new map, reported in the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society, will allow scientists to make the best measurements so far of the effects of a mysterious force known as dark energy on the expansion of the universe and, consequently, the ultimate fate of the cosmos. Since its formation in the Big Bang 13.8 billion years ago, the universe has been expanding outwards like dots on the skin of a balloon that's being blown up. Scientists thought eventually gravity would slow down that expansion, resulting either in a steady state in which things remain pretty much as they are now, or possibly with gravity taking over, causing the universe to start contracting again, resulting in what astronomers call a big crunch. However, ongoing observations over the last two decades have shown that not only is the universe still expanding, but that its rate of expansion is accelerating. Now, Depending on the ultimate strength of dark energy, the findings could mean that the universe will keep expanding forever until only our local group of galaxies remain visible and the rest of the universe moves too far away to ever be seen, a fate which astronomers are calling the Big Freeze. Or alternatively, dark energy becomes even stronger, so dominating in fact that it causes not only the galaxies to move away from each other, but also the stars in those galaxies and the planets in those star systems and even the subatomic particles inside atoms, a scenario astronomers are calling the Big Rip. In order to get a better handle on the ultimate fate of the universe, hundreds of physicists and astronomers developed the new map over five years as part of the Baryon Oscillation Spectroscopic Survey, or BOSS, program, which itself is part of the Sloan Digital All-Sky Survey 3. Shaped by a continuous tug-of-war between dark matter and dark energy, the new map revealed by BOSS allows scientists to measure the expansion rate of the universe and also how that's changed over time and distance. This map provides astronomers with the data needed to determine the amount of dark matter and dark energy that make up the present-day universe. BOSS measures the expansion rate of the universe by determining the size of baryonic acoustic oscillations in the three-dimensional distribution of galaxies throughout space. The original baryonic acoustic oscillation size is determined by pressure waves that travelled through the young universe up to when it was about 400,000 years old, at which point they became frozen in the matter distribution of the universe. The end result is that galaxies have a slight preference to be separated by a characteristic distance that astronomers call the acoustic scale. The size of the acoustic scale at 13.4 billion years ago has been exquisitely determined by observations of the cosmic microwave background radiation from the light emitted when the pressure waves became frozen. Measuring the distribution of galaxies since that time allows astronomers to measure how dark matter and dark energy have competed to govern the expansion rate of the universe. The study's lead author, David Schlegel, an astrophysicist with the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory, says the new map provides data on the 95% of the universe that's dark, allowing astronomers to see galaxies being gravitationally pulled towards other galaxies by dark matter. 
And on much larger scales, it allows scientists to see the effect of dark energy ripping the universe apart. The new map allows astronomers to measure just how much galaxies and stars cluster together as a function of time, to a degree of accuracy allowing scientists to test Albert Einstein's general theory of relativity on cosmological scales. Measuring the acoustic scale across cosmic history provides astronomers with a direct ruler to measure the universe's expansion rate and trace the subtle imprint of baryonic acoustic oscillations on the distribution of galaxies spanning a range of time from 2 to 7 billion years ago. To measure the size of these ancient giant waves to such sharp precision, BOSS had to make an unprecedented and ambitious galaxy map, many times larger than previous surveys. At the time the BOSS program was planned, dark energy had been determined to significantly influence the expansion of the universe starting about 5 billion years ago. The new findings also tie in with previous results, thereby providing a clean cosmological picture and giving strength to the standard cosmological model which has been emerging over the past 18 years. Astronomers saw a dramatic connection between the sound wave imprint seen in the cosmic microwave background radiation 400,000 years after the Big Bang and the clustering of galaxies 7 to 12 billion years later. The map also reveals a distinctive signature for the coherent movement of galaxies towards regions of the universe with more matter, due to the attractive force of gravity. And crucially, this observed amount of infall is very well explained by the predictions of general relativity. NASA's first mission to touch the sun's past another crucial development milestone, keeping it on track for launch in July 2018. The Solar Probe Plus mission will send a spacecraft on a series of data-collecting runs through the sun's outer atmosphere, Corona. Over 24 orbits, the spacecraft will use seven flybys of Venus to reduce its distance from the sun. The closest three orbits will be just 6.3 million kilometres above the Sun's visible surface. That's roughly seven times closer than any other spacecraft has ever come to our local star. At this extreme distance, the spacecraft will face solar intensity over 500 times greater than that experienced in Earth orbit. The mission will provide new data on solar activity and contribute significantly to science's ability to forecast major space weather events that impact life on Earth. The primary science goals of Solar Probe Plus are to trace the flow of energy from and understand the heating of the Sun's outer atmosphere, its corona, and to explore the physical mechanisms that accelerate the solar wind, the continuous stream of charged and energetic particles flowing out from the Sun. But to do that requires sending a probe through the corona to better understand the solar wind and the material it carries out into the solar system. It's been a goal of scientists for nearly 60 years, one that's only possible today thanks to cutting-edge thermal engineering advances. Solar Probe Plus will carry four instrument suites designed to study magnetic fields, plasma and energetic particles, and image the solar wind. The spacecraft and instruments will be protected from the sun's heat by a 12-centimetre-thick carbon composite shield, which will need to withstand temperatures that can reach 1400 degrees Celsius, yet keep the spacecraft's payload operating at room temperature. The mission is now moving into the system assembly, integration, test and launch stages of the project. NASA terms this period as Phase D, during which the mission team will finish building the spacecraft, install its scientific instruments, test the whole lot under simulated launch and space conditions, and finally launch the vehicle. Mission manager Andy Dreisman from the Johns Hopkins University Applied Physics Laboratory 
says reaching this stage means the team has successfully designed a spacecraft, instruments and a mission that can address the engineering challenges associated with a harsh solar environment. Solar Pro Plus is slated for launch during a 20-day launch window, which opens on July 31st, 2018. We'll keep you informed. And that's the show for now. You can subscribe and download Spacetime as a free twice-weekly podcast through iTunes, Stitcher, Bytes.com, Pocket Casts, SoundCloud, Audioboom, and from SpacetimeWithStuartGary.com. For more, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr. Just search for Spacetime with Stuart Gary. This show is also broadcast coast-to-coast across the United States on Science360 Radio by the National Science Foundation in Washington, D.C. You've been listening to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. Subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, or Audioboom. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine. This month, exploring NASA's Juno mission to the King of Planets. 